0: Welcome to Obsessed with Design, a show about what makes designers tick. My name's Josh Miles. I'm a designer, principal, and brand strategist at Miles Herndon, a branding agency in beautiful downtown Indianapolis. Today on Obsessed with Design, I get to catch up with Jen and Ken Visaki O'Grady. I'm not sure if you guys know this, but there happens to be a little thing going on right now called an election And among other things, we talk about Jen's work on the Get Out the Vote campaign for AIGA, their work within books, their client work, and lots of tips for design students. So without further ado, please enjoy my conversation with Ken and Jen Visaki O'Grady. All right, guys, I would like to welcome all the way from a land called Cleveland, designers, authors, and educators, Jen and Ken Visaki O'Grady. Jen and Ken, welcome to Obsessed with Design.
1: Thanks, Thanks. Josh. Thanks for having us.
0: So forever ago, I, as well as you guys back then, served on uh, local AIGA boards. I was uh, on the Indianapolis board doing everything from events to a three-ish year run as president and One of my most favorite things about my time working with AIGA was the opportunity to attend those leadership retreats each year, which is, I think, where I met you guys.
1: Yes, absolutely. I think we met at the Midwest Chapter Leadership Retreat in Cincinnati.
0: (laughs) I think you're right. It was we had so much fun doing these leadership retreats that the Midwest Chapters just built their own extracurricular one and decided one a year wasn't enough. So we needed to do more of them.
2: It 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 is a beautiful thing about AIGA. It's all the people that you know and that you're networked with. Sometimes Ken and I give talks about, you know, how we've gotten to where we're at. And one of the things we always point to is how we couldn't have done any of it without AIGA and the connections we've made.
1: Yeah, I feel like through my chapter experiences uh, that I got a second graduate education and that those leadership retreats and, you know, working with the people on the board and working with the other chapters and working with the national board was really an important part of my early career development.
0: Absolutely. And then Jen, you are, are you currently a national board member for AIGA? I am. I am. And I am delighted
2: to be one. Yeah. Um, So I've been involved with AIGA for a long time, uh, originally as a faculty advisor. And then as soon as I started the chapter in Cleveland at Cleveland State, I I didn't start the Cleveland chapter, uh, but I started a student group and it seemed important to get them connected to the local chapter. And that's how Ken and I really got involved with the local chapter was sort of shepherding our students to AIGA as a way to connect them to the professional community. Um, so much like your story, um, I think Ken and I together served one of every role on the board. Um, and and now, um, gosh, over the years, I've gone around and visited other chapters and judged design shows and given talks. And I am honored and lucky to be serving on the national board at this point.
0: And Ken, I feel like the thing that I first, uh, maybe my first memory of you was riding around in a bus with a whole bunch of AIGA people and you telling us a story about like falling off of a cliff or something.
1: (laughs) Yeah. Um, yeah, I fell off a 40 foot cliff mountain biking, um, somewhere around my 25th or sixth birthday. I don't don't remember (laughs) anymore. Um, but yeah, I fell off a 40 foot cliff. I was by myself um, had to drag myself over a mile through the woods back to, I actually, I was going to drive myself home, uh, or drive myself to the hospital. And luckily I'd been calling for help and, uh, some emergency responders found me when I was less than five feet away from my car. And it's a good thing because I was in shock, but didn't realize it and in my mind, you know, hopping back to my car took about a half an hour, but it really took almost two because it would black out and fall down. oh wow, and then get back up and then just keep working my way back to my car.
0: I think there's a design metaphor in there somewhere about <laughs> blacking out and falling down and it taking an hour and a half longer than you thought it would, but yeah, maybe <laughs> maybe but maybe to get back to the topic um. Obviously, the the two of you now are like this design education author power couple. But how how did each of you find your way into design? What were what were each of your origin stories? I'll let you go first.
2: Yeah. Um, well, so I was one of every college major, which um, my parents eventually got frustrated with, but were very supportive of. Um, and I had always been taking a lot of English classes. I was an English major through most of it, and kept adding on second majors. And I always had a minor or a double major somewhere in the arts. So always really creative. Um, And at one point, I think I was an advertising major for, you know, five hours as well. (laughs) Um, Sooner or later, I ended up taking this class with a guy named Doug Goldsmith, um, who's still a professor at Kent State. And I think it was called something really neutral like Visual Organization One, but um, it was a color theory class. And we used this paper, I don't remember the name of it, do you? Color Guard or Color Aid? Uh, color aid. Color aid. Um, anyway, it was kind of like a big smooth sheets of the paint chips that you could get at Lowe's, right? Yeah, but, I
0: totally know what you're talking like, about.
2: Um, and we had to create a children's book illustration with like 16th of an inch strips of color. And if the color was purple, you couldn't use purple color aid. You had to use red and blue together, right? So it was this mm-hmm. meticulous, crafted, nitpicky color disaster torture project. And I loved it. (laughs) I I loved (laughs) the attention to detail. And I I loved um, the meticulous nature of it. And I was simultaneously taking a sculpture class that I hated. And so I would come into poor Doug's class in these like big powdery overalls and um, miserably covered in like plaster and things like that. And then we did all this sort of fine hand work. And I felt like I found my people. And so as a junior, you know, a year away from graduating with this English major compilation, I told my mom and dad I was going to switch my major and um, they were less than super excited. And so Kent had a program where you could get a master's degree if you were doing well enough in the program. Um, You could kind of transfer in your senior year into starting to take some of the master's level classes. Mm -hmm. And I promised my dad, Ted, I swear, if you support me in this, I will get into the master's program. And then I just had to do it.
0: (laughs) That's awesome.
1: I think that for me, I was interested in design. Um, I was aware of what design was in high school. And in high school, I was taking a lot of art classes. And uh, I was lucky enough that the high school that I was at had architectural drawing classes and engineering drawing classes. And I had some friends that were taking some vocational classes in commercial art, um, Through a local program, and so I I was curious as to what design was as a career. Uh, At the same time, my grades in high school were abysmally bad, and um, guidance counselors and teachers and everyone around me were telling me that I should maybe look at alternative uh, paths um, instead of going to college. And so I decided to try commuting to a local university for a while uh, that did not have a design program. And when I was there. I was taking psychology and anthropology and primatology and sociology and um, religious studies classes, and I was thriving. And all of a sudden, you know, I went from being a a terrible student to being on the dean's list. Um, But, you know, I I didn't at a certain point, I discovered that I did did not want to major in psychology. And um, I was pretty close to graduation. I think I had maybe a year and a half left to graduate. And so I decided to change majors and change universities and went to Kent State to study design. And, you know, a lot of the rigor of the program, as Jen just described, um, really resonated with me because, you know, there was this ability to create things and have a portfolio of work to show that you knew what you were doing, that you were capable of these things. And uh, it was a really competitive program. You know, at the time, I'll never forget, we had a graduate teaching assistant uh, for our first class, and she said to all of us on the first day, you know, look around, there are 20 of you in here and you need a beer better to pass. And that means that four or five of you are going to make it. And because I had taken this leap of faith and changed majors and changed schools, I was hell bent to be one of those people that passed.
0: Um,
2: so basically we both let our parents down until around junior year when we started to get focused. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Sort
0: of late bloomers in the design profession.
1: That's Right. right you know, and, and much like, and much like Jen, you know, it can't at the time, if your GPA was high enough, you had the full support of the faculty, um, and your portfolio was strong enough. You could take 12 credit hours of senior level classes and graduate level classes at the same time. And so I got recruited into the graduate program actually by Jen, who was a year ahead of me in the program. And it was, uh,
2: I recruited him because he was cute. And, uh,
1: <laughs>
0: hey.
1: and I, and I showed up because she was cute. Um, and, uh, You know, I I think that uh, for me, that opportunity to, you know, where I I felt like the beginning of my college career was kind of slowed down by changing my mind about what I wanted to do, the opportunity to jump right into grad school kind of helped me catch back up to where I felt like I needed to be.
0: Mm -hmm. And so you guys, I mean, fast forward a little bit, when I met you guys, I think you were both running a studio and both teaching and both getting into writing and some other things. So how did the, the whole studio situation happen? Was it relationship first and studio later or studio first and relationship later, or
2: it it happened the way you would tell students, don't be an idiot, never do it this way. (laughs) Um, If if we're going to be honest with the internet here, Um, don't tell Lulu though. I'm sure she'll never hear any of this, but you know, we had been in grad school together. We had worked together in a studio in grad school called Glyphics, and we really enjoyed designing together. Um, I think we were friends and design colleagues first before we started dating. And so um, I don't know of anyone who wants to hire a couple of mid 20 somethings because they're dating (laughs) You know, we couldn't find a place that was going to hire us to work together. And so we started picking up freelance projects um, and part time teaching gigs, kind of morphing out of the role we were in as grad students anyway. And yeah. I accidentally landed a full time teaching job.
1: Yeah. <laughs> right. I mean, it, it all, looking back at it all, it, we, we are so lucky and it all happened by accident in a lot of ways. And I I think we were also kind of young and foolish and naive and optimistic about how all of those things would work. And luckily we landed on our feet. Um, But, you know, Endspace was really kind of an experiment. You know, we were both still in graduate school when we were filing our articles of incorporation and we just wanted to see what would happen. And, um, you know, originally our studio was in the back bedroom of our apartment and we realized that our clients weren't paying their bills because we were two twenty-somethings with a studio yeah. in the back bedroom of our apartment, and so we moved to a space on uh, East 38th and Lakeside, which is in the ha- the heart of Midtown Cleveland, and you know ended up doing that whole thing with uh, having a big beautiful loft space and a warehouse building with a skee ball machine and a pinball machine, and you know it was it was really great. And at a certain point, when I started teaching full time at Kent State University and Jen was at Cleveland State you know, our, our professional practice was a part of our creative activity and research, mm-hmm. and it allowed us to keep ourselves engaged with the demands of, um, the professional world, but, you know, life evolves and we started writing books and started, you know, taking on more responsibility at the university. And we had a baby and, you know, something we had to put something down. And, um, at that point it was keeping the studio open um, at least in that, in the way that it was, just it wasn't possible.
0: Yeah, legally, it's harder to put the baby down. So you, you know, that's, right. that's not Perfect. an option. Okay, people fine.
2: Judge you for that. <laughs> <laughs> so I think NSpace, um, as a company, ran for a good decade, yeah. you know, about ten years. And over that time, um, we got up to I think five people working with us, at, or ourselves included, yep. so three people working with us. Um, it was never huge. It was always. A a bunch of partners working together—you know, really good friends, people we had worked with at the universities we taught at, people we went to school with—and so it was a bunch of buddies hanging out together and working together. It's another one of those things you're not supposed to do—is go into business with your friends and family—and we broke all the rules. But it was a a really great, really formative experience for us. And I think that the work we did along the way was real solid design. I'm
1: really proud of the work that we did, and when I look back, those years were—they were very stressful. I mean, there were moments where we were four or five weeks away from going bankrupt and I, I just, you know, like an angel client would come in or we'd land a project at the last minute and everything would be fine for another couple of months. But it was a lot of fun.
0: I think maybe that's like small business universally that yeah. everybody's like three <laughs> projects or three weeks away from being out of business. But, yeah. you know, it's uh, it's a lot of, lot of ups and downs. So today you guys are predominantly... Teaching and writing, correct? Yep. Correct. And so, you guys are still each with the same respective universities with Kent State and
2: in Cleveland State. Yeah, I'm, yeah. I think I'm going into my 18th year with Cleveland State.
1: Yeah, I, I think I've been at Kent State for 14 or 15 years now.
0: Nice. And then, so you guys still occasionally will do like the occasional project, right? So I was doing the, I was reading up on your. Malaria poster, which was really cool.
1: Yeah, you know, I, I think for me, so my role at Kent State, um, so I've, I've been the graduate coordinator for the past three or four years. And so um, I've been mostly involved with our students at the graduate level. And so we've been tackling these kind of unframed research oriented problems over the past couple of years where um, I've been lucky enough to have these really talented, really bright and shiny graduate students, you know, investigate things like uh, how can design break the disease cycle of malaria in the Kibera slums, or how can design uh, help aid victim response and victim support during active shooter events? And, you know, we've, we've done some really great projects that way. And I, I think that for me, um, you know, my practice in design is, is shifted more to helping those students uh, get the skill sets that they need to be competitive and go out into the world and make their mark.
0: So in addition to that, I'm sure we could talk about uh, the AIGA related things a lot. Um, but in particular, I wanted to talk to you guys about kind of your work as authors. Like, what I know you're getting ready to release a new new edition of one of your books and also talk to you a little bit about the Get Out the Vote campaign, which is a very timely thing.
2: Sure. sure. Um, well, maybe we should talk about um, books and project work. I think building on what Ken was talking about with his grad students, he has the opportunity to continue having that studio experience by working with grad students. And they're solving these sort of big meaty design issues, social issues. Um, and I wouldn't even say solving is the word, but exploring and seeing where um, design can intervene and where there's opportunity for us to stretch beyond the commercial. Um, at Cleveland State, on an undergraduate level, I'm doing that kind of work in classes too. It's just happening at a a more um, absorbable, less big sticky problem way. So I'm probably doing things like um, working with NASA locally to see how we can celebrate NASA and get um, teens and tweens into NASA. And there are these kind of theoretical classroom projects, but bringing folks in um, from other outside organizations sometimes ends up with things like internships for our students working actually at NASA. We have done celebrations for the city's bicentennial, done things celebrating the university's anniversary. And and doing those real world design projects with a room full of students makes you feel like you're working in a big studio and and gives them a very sort of professional practice window view, uh, maybe before they even get to internships, so that when they go into internships, they're qualified.
1: One of the things I really enjoyed about the project that we've been working on at the graduate level is that. Some of the stuff that, we, that we've been working on are, are things that the industry might not be able to tackle because they're projects that are, you know, there's not really a client associated with them. They're not funded and they really are kind of research oriented. So there's no guarantee that what we do is actually going to work, but we kind of feel like there is an opportunity for designers to explore these issues and see how design can make an impact or if design can make an impact. And so I I like being disconnected in a way from that commercial context to be free to explore these things that, you know, are more humanitarian in nature. Mm
2: -hmm. And so while it's a little bit of a long walk to getting back to answering your question, I think that we thrived in the professional practice of design and loved what we were doing, but we really loved the classroom too. And we're trying to bring that professional experience into the classroom. And when we do that, we end up being cheerleaders for the power of design Um, And when we're cheerleading for the power of design, I think that that's exactly what we're doing in our books. Um, Our books are all about examples of design professionals from around the world, around the country, and what you all are doing every day in your studios um, in telling your story as example for best practices. So it's sort of naturally rolled into writing about design. And when we go out and speak our speaking engagements tend to be example-based, um, with friends and colleagues that we've met around the country through things like AIGA, um, which connects AIGA back into it as well.
0: Well, what I love about your story in particular is it's like, it's kind of like the mirror opposite of mine in that (laughs) while I've never been full-time faculty, I think I've done like five or six different, um, you know, limited guest faculty kind of engagements where I was teaching just one class a semester or something like that. But I loved, 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 loved teaching. So if somebody hits me with a truck full of money, I think that's what I would, would go do is go, go teach a uh, design or brand somewhere. And, uh, I love the idea of kind of bringing the classroom element into what I do professionally. So I, I think it's really cool that you guys kind of do the opposite of that, that you're kind of you know, using the the teaching platform to kind of illustrate the power of design. I think that's, it's very cool.
2: Yeah, hopefully it arms our design students with the language that they need to be able to really get swimming out in the profession.
0: Well, tell us a little bit about what's going on with the Get Out the Vote project.
2: Sure. Um, well, I don't, I don't know how familiar you or your audience are with Get Out the Vote, but it's been around for a while. Um, I think it started around the year 2000. Um, And Get Out the Vote is a part of the Design for Democracy initiative. And so you'll remember that this isn't the only contentious election and that um, around Bush v. Gore, there was all sorts of contention, both before the election happened. And so that's where Get Out the Vote was. Um, It was a poster project. Um, designers like to make posters, right? And so they, AIGA asked for a national poster campaign, supporting supporting a nonpartisan issue, which was get people registered and get Mm -hmm. people to turn out. Um, And then after the Bush-Gore election, we had all those issues with hanging chads and the legibility of the ballot, especially the butterfly ballot. And so, um, right, Smart, shiny people like Marsha Lawson at uh, UIC got into evaluating the ballot and seeing how design could help. And I won't go into all the details of it, but it became a really long, intensive form of research and study. And then I I think a real lesson to the folks who were doing that about what working within governmental systems was like and how many legislators and policymakers you had to interface with. Because there were actually laws on the ballot about the type, like it all needs to be all caps, Mm -hmm. Um, things that wouldn't make any sense to us in a design classroom and and things that may have been sort of arbitrary. Um, So so Marsha's got a great book out about that. And Design for Democracy really took off at AIGA. Um, and folks like Drew Davies, who you might remember from our old leadership retreat mm, yeah. days um, in in Omaha, he really picked up the mantle with that and started working with the Center for Civic Design. And so over the years, I think in 2012, Design for Democracy came out with these um, election design election design guideline books, and they were targeted at uh, county election officials in helping them understand how the legibility of their ballots. Um, it, among other things, could improve the voter experience, improve turnout, um, improve accuracy. And so there's such great legacy and really meaningful, meaty work with Design for Democracy. Um, when I came on the board, I've always been, you know, a, a political geek. You know, it's something that I like to follow. It's, it's something I'm proud of. I vote every time I can vote. I've been taking Lulu to vote with me since she was, you know, a toddler in my arms It's just something I personally believe in. I don't have any real experience in election design. It's just a topic I like. And so when I came onto the board, um, I happened to have a gallery at Cleveland State that's right on the main drag in Cleveland within walking distance of all the RNC convention traffic. And I offered that up to Rick Grafe, who was the executive director at the time, um, right before he retired. And he said, oh, good, Jen, someone needs to run the Get Out the Vote campaign this year. And I said, well, I don't need to run it. I just have a gallery for you. Do your AIG magic. <laughs> and I will, I will convince the president of my university to give us use of this gallery. And Rick said, no, you can do it. You'll figure it out. And so it has been my honor and uh, privilege to try not to screw up on this really great campaign that happened every four years, trying to mobilize um, the, the voting public.
1: I, I think in um, Jen's being self-deprecating about this, you know, I, I think AIJ Get Out the Vote has more posters this year than it has had in any of its uh, previous iterations. There was a gallery opened within the inner circle of the RNC. There was another gallery show of AIJ Get Out the Vote posters in Philadelphia during the DNC. Um,
2: yeah, we been, both conventions.
1: There have been initiatives that have been launched at, at the chapter level all around the country. Um, There have there was a a poster designed by
2: um, Uh, Augustine Garza. He's also on the national board. He's a fellow out of L.A. and he's spectacular.
1: That featured Edward James Olmos and has resulted in a PSA that has been airing on Telemundo and Univision that has now been seen by Azteca Azteca by over 80 percent of the Hispanic and Latino population in the United States. And that all came out of Get Out the Vote.
2: And, and, and so it's it's definitely not all my doing, but I am an exceptional nag, and I managed to um, con all of my friends into working on things. So I,
1: can, I cannot confirm or deny that Jen is an exception.
0: <laughs> <laughs> that is awesome. Well, it sounds like that combination has been just incredible, and it's it's awesome to hear that you know a, a design instructor in Cleveland can have such a profound impact on. Something like a national election or awareness of uh, what's going on in that universe. So, so kudos to you.
2: Well, and that's a cool thing about. I was in I was in Oklahoma last week talking about get out the vote to um, a group of students, and I think that the cool thing is that any one poster could be something that catches, and that gallery is up there for anyone to use, and so. You know, designers like to put on poster shows and fill galleries and that sort of thing. But what we do in a grassroots fashion with those posters or those visual messages, because, you know, they could be turned into social media messages. They could be shared in any number of ways. There's so much power in our ability as creatives. Um, And right now, gosh, last time I looked, there were 575 posters. I'm sure there are more since then. The collection just keeps growing and it will get archived, just like the collections from past years are available on the website. Um, This year, we've got a partnership with the League of Women Voters. Uh, League of Women Voters is, I think, arguably one of the most respected um, and nonpartisan resources for voter information. And so the League has 700 chapters around the country in almost 100-year history. We have almost 70 chapters AIGA-wise and 100-year history. And so the power of these two organizations and every single individual that contributes um, is so much greater than what any one of us could do together or alone. I'm sorry.
0: Well, kudos to, uh, Rick Griffey for, for calling you out and kind of, it, so we have a phrase for that, um, sort of opportunity in our office and we call that, um, you know, somebody's pushing you into the deep end of the pool like and just saying, if <laughs> <Yeah>. you'll swim. <laughs> so yeah. it sounds like Rick gave you a very gentle shove into the deep yes, end and, and it worked out great.
2: Internally here, we talk about being given a ring to take to a volcano, but yeah,
1: same idea. Or or burning the ships, you know, like when Columbus got to the the New World, he burned the ships so his sailors were motivated to build.
0: It's a timely note since uh, I think as we're recording this, it's the day after Columbus Day.
2: That's right, good Columbus Day reference, Ken. Thanks.
0: Well done. Well done. After, (laughs) add yourself a reminder to use that in 364 days.
2: I I do think, too, I want to give a shout out to Julie Annickster, who is the new Rick, if you will. She's the new executive director of AIGA since January. And so she picked this up mid-campaign and has given so much support to promoting the initiative. Um, She was just in L.A. a couple of weeks ago with Augustine Garza and Edward James Olmos and the mayor of L.A., um, who is involved in using Augustine's poster of Olmos all over the city. And so there's, there's so much growth and support, um, by continuing those initiatives. And I, I appreciate all of it.
0: Very cool. Well, maybe shifting gears ever so slightly, and Jen, maybe, maybe this is it for you, but, um, tell us about one of your proudest professional moments as a designer.
1: It's
2: a tricky one, Josh. Um, (laughs) I don't know if I ever think about those. All I ever think is, um, crap oh crap oh crap don't screw this up and then i'm just sort of relieved (laughs) this is is over and i move on to the next thing yeah i don't which i'm nervous about failing i don't know
1: you know i that's a that's a weird one
0: well maybe i'll flip it on you guys ken what what do you think jen should be saying
2: okay if
1: you're you are you're challenging our midwest sensibilities yeah we don't we i don't think (laughs) that any of us ever think of ourselves in a um Kind of self-aggrandizing way.
2: <laughs> There's a. Uh, I can tell you what Ken's dad thinks we did best. We have a picture of um, President Bush when he came to Cleveland to speak at the City Club. No, the, City Club <laughs> <laughs> the City Club was. The City Club was one of our clients, and the City Club is a uh, like a citadel for free speech. Also, another hundred-year-old organization, and so we did the like the guide for it. And we had to interface with the state department to find out what typefaces to use and things like that. And there's this picture on the front of the local newspaper, the Cleveland Plain dealer of uh, W signing, <laughs> signing the things we had designed and we never voted for W, but um, his dad was really impressed that the president touched something we made. So yeah, that
1: was, that's a weird one. And then just this past summer, we were asked to participate in the uh, 45 pin project for Hillary for America. And that was pretty exciting.
2: That was very exciting. It was just Uh, an honor to be included in
1: that. It was such a tiny little project, but, you know, with all of the designers that participated in it, it was just such an honor. And so, I don't know, maybe we'll have designed something for two sitting presidents. Nice. Nice. Yeah.
2: And Barack Obama can call us any time. (laughs) Yeah. I I don't know. You know, when I... When
1: I think about the things that I'm proud of in my career, I don't necessarily know if they're my accomplishments. You know, I I have so many students that have gone on to do amazing things and I am proud of them. But, you know, those accomplishments are theirs.
2: There is something, though, to um, when we are having days where we're down and we're looking for the worth in our careers or, you know, if what we're doing matters, I think about all of the students we've had opportunity to interact with and how many of them we still stay in touch with and are friends with and how bright and shiny they are and how many cool things they're doing. And like Ken said, they're not our accomplishments, but to have been part of what launched them is probably the most meaningful thing we do.
0: Yeah. So let's go down that path then. So obviously you guys have uh, worked with and instructed a lot of uh, design students, can Do you feel like you can tell early on in their career, like which, which design students are going to take this seriously, which ones are going to be great professionals or future instructors, or like, what do you think defines what makes a good design student?
2: Ken's chewing on that one. I can see his face. So I'm going to give you the sometimes, but rarely answer. I think that there are some people who are wildly talented and come to us with great work ethics, and that is a delight and a rarity. A really, really big rarity. I have had some really spectacular students who had to take my class more than once because they did so poorly in it the first time around. And they blossomed later for whatever reason. And the university that I work at, like everyone's got a lot of life going on. You know, people are working multiple jobs. They're supporting families. They're the first person in their family to go to college. There's all sorts of reasons that other things interfere with homework projects, Right. Sometimes they get there more slowly, but they really, really get there. I, I think it's the ones that find it resonates with who they are and who they want to be that take it and run with it.
1: Yeah, I think it, it all comes down to you know, talent is a, it is, a, is a given, but curiosity and work ethic for me are, are really big. and Those are, those are difficult to ascertain um, when you first start working with somebody.
2: I also think, and this is a kind of strange, like nobody puts this in design magazines, but sometimes I think our students who are most personable, they have the best interaction with their classmates, they have some leadership skills, they are very social, are just as prepared to be successful working adults as the ones who are really great form makers. Um, I've, I've seen so many really talented designers not have the social skills to really launch them. Um, so I, I feel like it's my job to prepare them for all the many things they're going to encounter in the workforce and to have them just prepared enough to get started. And if they're great socially, we can encourage how they talk about design and how they critique it and how they work in groups of people and how they take on you know, research activities. And it doesn't necessarily always have to be the form makers that are the only ones who move forward.
1: Yeah, I think it, I think it comes down to how, how we define successful I think as a as a professional educator, if we can work with a student through, you know four, or in some cases five, um, years of an undergraduate experience, and at the end of that, there comes a young adult that can get a job and take care of themselves. We are successful, you the, know.
2: The end goal is um, from parents' know, that's
1: that's a good thing. I, you know, any any academic unit at any university would say, "Hey, that is good. That is success." You know, um, and then hopefully, you know, we have I have lots of students that have take that taken. They have gone above and beyond that um, for sure. Especially at the graduate level, it's you know I'm, I am constantly impressed and inspired and amazed by what my students and our alumni are doing.
0: So that's, that's a good, um, maybe segue too. is obviously you guys are probably much more familiar with graduate programs in the design world than I am, as I've never been part of one. So who would you say is the best fit for a graduate program in design or who would you, um, counsel to, yeah, you should definitely get a grad degree in design or who would you say, nah, just go straight in, go to work or go do something else. Like how, how do you help guide that?
1: Yeah, Well, I do a lot of graduate recruiting as graduate coordinator. And so I have a lot of conversations with folks about graduate school and they're beginning to think about a graduate degree. And at can State, we offer two different design degrees at the graduate level. We have an MA degree and an MFA degree. And an MA degree is designed to help somebody who has a degree in a related field to design, build an entry-level portfolio. And so we have a lot of folks that are maybe retraining or shifting gears. Um, These are folks that have degrees in advertising or public relations or communication, or in some cases, journalism that have been working alongside designers and they love what those folks are doing and they want to be able to do that too. And so they're looking for a way to kind of jump into that world Mm -hmm. and we can help them do that in about two, maybe two and a half years. Um, And then the MFA level, you know, the way that I look at it is that the MFA is the terminal degree in our industry right now and so or in our field. And so at that level, we're really looking at talking about design as, you know, to quote you know, Charles Eames as a method of action, we're looking at design as a process in that, you know, we're looking for if you were to come to us and say, you know, I, I would like to have an MFA in design, you're really saying that I want to enter into some sort of leadership role within my discipline and within my community. And that at the MFA level, we are engaged in research and trying to contribute to a body of knowledge to advance the profession. And so um, it, it has a different outcome and it's it's for a different type of person. You know, years ago, I think a lot of people thought, well, people went into graduate school because they wanted to teach. And when I look at my graduate students now, um, about half of them are choosing to go into an educational role as a faculty member or a professor. And, you know, the other half are moving into industry and uh, they're taking on roles like uh senior design strategist or senior design researcher or that are entrepreneurial and they're starting their own organizations or their own companies. In some cases, they're not even really designing things like the way that we normally think about it, but they're designing experiences or they're um, conducting research and then promoting and selling that research. Um, and so I, I, think it's, um, I, I think it's just about, you know, where you are and, and what you're looking for in terms of you know your growth and development as a professional,
2: I think that school at any level in any subject can always help launch you into something new. And so, Josh, I think your original question was, what kind of skills um, are you looking for in incoming students, right? Or what mm-hmm. what kind of attributes would someone have? Would make them a good candidate. I think that uh, writing is becoming more and more important. And so, anyone who wants to go into further design study or even uh, going into an undergrad program, I think that designers who are also competent writers will go further. I think that curiosity is such a big thing. And certain kinds of personalities are attracted to uh, design and communication and the arts. And certain personalities are are attracted to um, a different kind of analytical, like there's one right answer. And I, I think that if you've got someone who is open to many interesting answers and not necessarily right answers, those folks tend to do well in design.
1: Yeah, I think for us at the MFA level, we're not we're not really there to help you make a better portfolio. Um, you have a pretty great portfolio to be able to get in.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: It's not to say that we're not, that students in our graduate program don't take studio classes, but because they do. But we're also taking other coursework that is more focused on theory, on research you know, design is a, you know, a design for social good.
0: I think interestingly enough, a lot of that that you guys are talking about that applies to students also translates really well to the interviewing environment. So if a candidate shows up here and they're not curious and they haven't done their research and they haven't put themselves in a good position to ask good questions about what it's like to work here you know, that tells us right away that, okay, they're just not serious or they're not into it. And, and I think, you know, I would definitely echo the, the curiosity word that both of you brought up. I think that's absolutely vital to young designers and kind of to, to stoke the fire and help them, um, stay interested in this profession for the long haul.
1: Yeah. It's amazing what you can do with curiosity, work ethic, and just being nice.
2: Yeah, those, that's, those are the, the three. That's like the triumvirate of um, yeah. skill set that you need to have.
1: You can pretty much go anywhere with those
2: the, three things in your pocket. The internet could teach you almost anything else, Josh. Right.
0: <laughs> I love it.
2: I actually get that question a lot about um, from like high school parents asking about what kind of skills their kids need to get into a college program, and every program is different. And I am in a big tent place where um, we will bring anyone into the program. It's it's not as portfolio driven as others are, but I really stress creativity and curiosity and broad experience when they're incoming freshmen, because when they get a lot of specialized design training in high school, I, I kind of feel like you have to reteach them half of that stuff anyway. Mm-hmm. And we're so much more than a suite of software, right? And I think that sometimes in high school programs, it's taught like that. Um, I'm not saying that there aren't some innovative high school design educators out there, but I'm not encountering as much of it as, as I'd like to see. So, you know, bring me a kid who likes to read all over the place, and likes to write and is involved in a bunch of different activities and um, gets their homework done. And we can teach them almost anything.
1: Listening to and following directions. That is, that is an amazing skill set.
0: <laughs> Absolutely. And I think, um, you know, just to add to that, even back when I was doing more teaching there some of the programs that I taught for were definitely more software and how to driven. And some of them were, you know, on the opposite scale, were much more design thinking and theory based. So I think it's, it's good to hear at least uh, from your perspective that a lot of them have moved away from the, the software and the ins and outs and more into the, the, the bigger ideas.
2: There, there are so many other ways for them to get software training now. And not that we don't do some of that, but I don't think we do. Nearly as much as we used to. Isn't that on
1: Bruce Mao's incomplete manifesto for growth? You know, it's like number 27. Don't rely on software. The problem with software is that everyone has it.
2: (laughs) He he made up the number 27. I don't know if it's number 27, but like
1: it's on there somewhere.
0: All right, Internet, we're going to check that. And if it actually (laughs) is number 27, then we know that Ken has got some kind of memory. Well, before I let you guys go, one of the questions that we ask everybody is you know, as designers, we're often very obsessed with various things It's sort of the nature of the name of the show here, but what would you guys, uh, name individually that you are most obsessed with right now?
2: (laughs) (laughs) Design wise, I feel like I'm obsessed with this election cycle might be too much. Get out the vote for me these days, but I cannot look away from what's going on on the TV screen.
1: Yeah. I have to second that one. It's, um, I, I am I am just so shocked by the news that comes out every single day that I am I am following the election constantly just to see what's next.
0: Awesome. Well, would you guys uh, maybe we have time for one more question here? Who would you guys name as your design heroes?
2: Oh gosh, that list is giant and mighty mm. and long.
1: Always comes back to Charles and Ray Eames for me.
2: Um, I, I would put, I think Marshall Lawson was hugely influential and it was neat that we got to interact with her a little bit in those early stages. I I think that the work that she did for design for democracy and that she did it through a classroom is just super meaningful and that she was able to take that classroom and turn it into something that any professional in AIGA could embrace and use in their own municipality. That's pretty powerful. You made me feel bad. <laughs> <laughs> I don't
1: like my answer anymore. <laughs>
2: Charles and Ray are cool too. We got
1: plenty of homage to them around their house. You know, I, I feel like my – my actually, I think the person that had the most influence on my career, individual that you know I interacted with, was probably my professor, um, Jerry Callback. And I was lucky enough to be able to teach alongside Jerry when I got hired at Kent State. And um, I feel like Jerry was my – he was my professor and mentor – um, through college and through the first 13 years of my career. And so I, I got to work with him, you know, for about 20 years. And um, I, I really feel like he probably had the most impact on who I am as a, as a, as a professional and as an educator.
2: I think going back to your question too, Josh, um, I, it's hard to have an instant answer for because I think at the stage that we're at in our careers, we have all the books of all the different famous designers, and we've met a lot of them through speaking circuits and AIGA work. And mm-hmm. in the end, the designers that I kind of hold in, in my heart as um, the community are the designers that I met on AIGA chapter boards it's not necessarily people who are in the books, but it's people who um, are doing a good everyday business and they're, they're kind and they're hiring my students as interns. And, you know, so it's, it's guys like you, it's guys like Justin Aaron's at rule 29. Um, it, it's folks that we know from around the country that are examples in our books every day and are really kind and generous in sharing those examples and not a jerk about it. It's, it's the, uh, the network of not a jerk designers rather than those, um, headliners that, that move me to want to keep being a part of the profession and and keep doing good work.
1: We've cycled it back to kindness, curiosity and work ethic.
2: Yeah. Yeah.
0: Awesome. I think that should be the, the headline of the podcast. Well, guys, I appreciate you both uh, taking the time to catch up. It was good chatting with both of you. It's been way too long. Um, but before we say goodbye, maybe you could tell all of our listeners where they can track down your books or connect with you guys online.
2: Sure. Well, we've got um, a wildly popular website, yeah. <laughs> which we update Um annually <laughs>
0: whether you need to or
1: not <laughs> right right
2: and we you, you
1: can follow you can follow us on the Twitter it's, yeah. my, it's my rick perry joke
2: <laughs> <laughs> we're really on top of politics um the two of us share a twitter account which we tweet from approximately once a month
1: i, I think we posted one photograph on instagram
2: Yep, yep, so we're <laughs> we're big in the social media. Um certainly all of our books are available on Amazon. And so keep your eye out because The Designer's Research Manual, second edition is coming out, I think in June
1: 2017. Hopefully. We have to get it done. <laughs> I guess someone's <laughs> got to
2: write that thing. Right.
0: <laughs> Beautiful. Well, Ken and Jen, we will definitely post all of those links in the show notes. It was good catching up with you guys and up with you too.
2: Thanks yeah. so much for asking, Josh. Yeah, and
0: thank you for being obsessed with design. All right, kids, that is number 40 in the books. Hard to believe. We're up to 40. Thank you so much for listening. If you have not, please visit iTunes and give us a rating and review. It'll help other people find the show. And you can put a few words in there about why you listen to Obsessed with Design. Obsessed with Design is a product of the Design Obsessed team at Miles Herndon, a branding agency located on the 13th floor of beautiful Circle Tower in downtown Indianapolis. Hit up our Instagram account this week. We are at Miles Herndon. Our intro music is Matchbox Girl by Cassie Joe, and our show is always edited by the talented gen eds at the Brassy Broadcast Company. Visit BrassyBroad.com to learn more. Give us a shout on Twitter this week and let us know who you think we should interview next. We are at Obsessed Show and I'm at Josh Miles. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.